everyone, uh, we are back here again uh, to talk about, listen to, and talk about some things that John Clayton is going to discuss with us today. Uh, today our topic, we are on Lesson 13, and uh, if you have your outline, you see that the title of that um, is, uh, What is the Paranormal? And uh, he is going to talk to us considerably about what the paranormal is from a definition standpoint. He's going to talk to us uh, today uh, as he introduces this topic because as you can see on the screen, he deals with this issue over the next uh, four, at least four uh, lessons. So there's a considerable amount of time that he spends on this. So at least he feels like it is a topic um, of great relevancy to um, our question, does God exist? Um, and the question, related question, obviously, is how are these things related to God and, and his purposes for us? Um, he will uh, uh, expose to us and share with us a variety of Bible passages uh, on this topic. And frankly, I was surprised that there were that many that mentions uh, this cluster of things that people that intrigue people and that uh, people engage in that uh, at least from the Bible standpoint there are strong uh, warnings to stay away from and there is sufficient evidence to show that many of them are simply just not true so as we begin with lesson 13 we will see what Clayton has to say and then come back and talk afterward Welcome to the Does God Exist series, program number 13. We're going to deal with something a little bit different here, and uh, some of you may think it's a little weird to have this particular lesson at this particular time in this series, but we're talking about the paranormal. The paranormal. If you go to the dictionary and you look up a definition of paranormal, you'll see something that looks like this, experiences that lie outside the range of normal experience or scientific explanation. And if you look at the subjects that could be listed in such a grouping, as you can see here, they cover a pretty wide range. And if you're an atheist and you're looking down this list, you'll see that some of these things are religious in nature, like reincarnation, spirits, but some of them are not. Some of them are things like aura that have had a lot of scientific attention over the years, ectoplasm. And the question is, how does this relate to questions and discussions of the existence of God? Is God in the paranormal category? Is he something equivalent to magic? This is an important issue, and it's important to distinguish between those things that might be metaphysical in nature, simply meaning that they are things that lie outside 
of the physical realm in which we exist, and therefore would have to be approached differently, but are not outside the realm of scientific investigation, and things that are purely in the realm of mysticism. There are a variety of areas where these subjects overlap. And sometimes the approach needs to be looked at very, very carefully. There's a famous story about the famous magician Houdini. And Houdini had a long-running discussion with a man by the name of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. In Scientific American in February of 2011, Michael Shermer had an article on page 89 about an exchange that went on between these two men that relates very closely to what we're talking about here. Let me try to explain the experiment to you. Houdini had Sir Arthur Conan Doyle come to his place of research, and Houdini had balls hanging from strings fastened to the top of the room, as I understand it. And he asked Sir Arthur Conan Doyle to take one of these balls and to roll it in an ink blotter pad so it was covered with ink. He then suggested that Mr. Doyle take a piece of paper and take a walk outside of his apartment and write down something on the paper and put it in his pocket. And as the story goes, Doyle wrote down a biblical passage from the Old Testament, put it in his pocket, and then returned back to Houdini's research facility. Houdini then took the ball that had had itself rolled in the ink, and he swung it against a easel, a board, and the ball rolled across the easel and printed out what Doyle had written on the slip of paper that was in his pocket. How did he do that? I don't know. I watch magicians enjoy their shows, and I can't explain most of what they do. But Doyle was convinced that this demonstrated that Houdini had some kind of supernatural powers. And I want you to notice what Houdini said in regard to that suggestion. I have devoted a lot of time and thought to this illusion. Notice he refers to it as an illusion. I won't tell you how it was done. <laughs> I would love to know how it was done. But I can assure you it was pure trickery. I did it by perfectly normal means. I devised it to show you what can be done along these lines. And I want you to notice this statement. Now, I beg you, Sir Arthur, do not jump to the conclusion that certain things you see are necessarily supernatural or the work of spirits just because you cannot explain them. That's an important point. Sometimes people say, well, I want you to show me just one thing that will convince me there's a God. One thing that will prove to me that God is. The difficulty with that is that there are so many ways that things like I have just described to you can be misinterpreted. But it's the weight of the evidence that we want to consider. It's important to recognize that you don't hold up just one thing and say, okay, here's an absolute proof 
of what we're talking about. So this discussion of the paranormal has a lot to do with how we demonstrate the existence of God, what connection there is between science and faith. And it's important to understand here that while there are certain things that we may not be able to explain naturally, that doesn't necessarily mean there's a God. There's an old allegation made by atheists. You say, all you guys ever do is the God of gaps argument. You say, well, if I can't explain something, that means God must have done it. And the problem with that is that later on, when we come up with an explanation, then the reason given for God's existence has been disproven, and to use the words of a number of philosophers, God is dead. It is no longer necessary. Or as one famous scientist says, I don't need that hypothesis. So we're trying to avoid any kind of a God of Gaps discussion in this series of lessons. What we want to do here is to look objectively at the question of the paranormal in broad terms. I'd like to point out to you that the Bible takes a very, very strong stand against things that are connected with the paranormal. For instance, in Exodus 22 and verse 18, there was a very strong statement made to the ancient Israelites. Do not allow a sorceress to live. That's pretty strong. Why would there be capital punishment involved for someone who is engaging in sorcery? In Deuteronomy 18, beginning with verse 10, Let no one among you be found who sacrifices his son or daughter in fire. Okay, now we're beginning to see why there is such a strong statement against sorcery. Because much of what was done in these areas involved things like murder. It goes on and says, not only who sacrifices his son and daughter in fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or a spiritualist who consults the dead. Why would there be such a strong statement? Throughout biblical history, the record of witchcraft and sorcery and divination and all of these things is violent. In Second Chronicles 33 and verse 6, we're told that Manasseh sacrificed his sons in fire, practiced sorcery, divination, and witchcraft. These are things that went together. So there was a strong statement against that, and the Bible is full of warnings against people who engage in this type of activity. As you look at this list, and as you read some of these statements that were made in the biblical record, you have to realize that one of the questions that comes up immediately is, why would there be such strong statements? And why would a God who is expecting us to believe in him as one who is not confined to the realm of cause and effect, why would he condemn other areas in that particular discussion who teach many of the same things? Let me suggest three things to you. Number one, God expects us to put our faith in him as God, in what he teaches. Christianity is a way of life. Christianity involves how we live, what we do, the choices that we make. Somebody has said, if you don't believe in something, you'll believe anything. And in our culture, we have a number of alternatives given to Christianity, which I would suggest to you, in, for the most part, are highly destructive. 
No one can read the Sermon on the Mount and look at what Jesus Christ taught and not realize that this is a positive way of living. Loving your enemy, turning the other cheek, doing good to others, as much as it depends upon us, being at peace with all men. Nobody would question the logic or the value of that approach. To suggest to us that somehow we should divide our attention to things that are perhaps not as constructive and positive is a negative. And I think this is one of the reasons why God is so strong in opposing those who would engage in the paranormal. The second point is that it diverts our energy. I have lived a long time on this earth. I've tried to devote the last 50 years of my life to being involved in trying to help people, to educate people. As a public school teacher in my work in communities, there is always more than I can do. There's always more that I would like to be involved in than I have the time or the energy to be involved in. And I think God intends for us to focus on those constructive things that are part of our lives, not to be diverted into things that are not constructive. And the third point is that, as we just saw, being involved in the paranormal very frequently puts you in the path of dangerous people. I've had friends who have had threats from people engaged in witchcraft. Now, that is not to say that all witches are dangerous people. That is not to say that everybody involved in the paranormal is dangerous. I think there are many people who sincerely and honestly want to improve themselves. They perhaps have given up on the concept of God for whatever reason, and they're desperately searching for something else. That's not the kind of person we're talking about. We're not talking about the entertainment factor. I love to watch a magic show. I appreciate the skills of someone who can make the Statue of Liberty disappear, the tiger disappear, for that matter, saw somebody in half. But it's important to understand that that is entertainment. It's not the same thing as sacrificing your son as an offering to some satanic god. It's not the same as some potion that's supposed to render us with some capable or some supernatural belief or position. So the question we wish to investigate in this discussion and in the next discussion is, are these things real? Do they actually happen? Let me suggest to you that there are three possible positions we can take on this. We can believe that these things are real, that they've always been real, that there is a whole world of spirit creatures out there, that there is a need to pacify various gods, various deities, various spirits, various satanic forces, and that this is a part of our daily life. Another position is that these things were present in the past, but that they're not present today. That this is a part of ancient times and that things have changed. The third possibility is that this whole thing is a scam. Always has been, always will be. That these things are not real that whatever is done to support belief in the paranormal is either misunderstood data, misunderstood phenomena, natural phenomena that have not been properly interpreted, or just an out-and-out ripoff. Now, you could gather connections of these. You could combine these in some way, perhaps. But what we want to do is to look at the evidence. Let me suggest two methods to you. 
It may not be that both of these methods will be acceptable by everybody watching this. Some of you will think the second method is better than the first method. Some of you will only want to rely upon the first method. I frankly think we need to use both methods in evaluating these claims. For those who believe in God, for those who are Christians, I think the first method, and perhaps the most important one for them, is to look for biblical answers. Search out what the Bible has to say on these things. Apply biblical principles and come to your conclusions by the basis of what you study in that area. In Philippians 2 and verse 12, we're told, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That statement is made to Christians. It's made to people who are living in daily lives. People who are searching for answers, but who have a fundamental belief in God. And we're told to work out our own salvation, to choose intelligently what we will believe. Now, if biblical principle is not a valid method of determining this, then the statement is a lie. If, in fact, the Bible is not a reliable way to determine what is true and what is false, even in the area of the paranormal, then why would a statement like this be made? In Ephesians 6 and verse 12, we're told, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against the powers of evil that hold sway in the darkness around us. Now, the concept here is that there is, in fact, a force that is evil in nature a spiritual force that is a part of our makeup. And in our previous discussion about why God created man, we talked about the fact that there is a battle going on between good and evil, and that we are a part of that struggle. But it's important to understand that that's a long way from sacrificing children to gods. It's a long way from believing that ghosts and spirits function against our will and enable us to not be able to choose what we will do. And I go back to the passage in Philippians to point out to you that every biblical statement made says we have the capacity to choose. The role of the church is emphasized in this particular area. In Ephesians 3, beginning with verse 10, we have an important passage that we discussed when we talked about the capacity and reason for God creating man. And notice what it says. His intent, this is referring to God, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. So according to that passage, there was a purpose that God had in creating us, and that purpose was connected to us. Let's keep reading. Known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Jesus Christ our Lord. Why do I exist? Why are we here? We talked about that in our earlier discussion about the nature of God and why God created man. And it's important to understand that this battle between good and evil is again a major part of the biblical perspective, but is not part of ghosts and demons and witches and sacrifices to unknown gods. So the basic biblical concept is that there's a purpose in our existence, and that purpose enables us and can only be accomplished in us through our own free will. Another statement is in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. 
No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Now, what we've said so far is that there's a purpose in our existence, and it's the struggle between good and evil. And I'm suggesting to you that there's a difference between the other things that we see in the paranormal and the concept of the struggle between good and evil. Notice this promise to Christians from God. There is no temptation seized you, but what is common to man. So if demons are real, then all of us should have had that experience. If ghosts are real, and if they affect us, and if they do things in our lives, then all of us should have had that experience. No temptation has seized you, but such as is common to man. But then notice this statement. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted about that which you can bear, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape. Now, in our discussion about why God created man, I gave you an illustration in my own life of how God provides ways of escape. But these are practical, living examples. These are things where God has told us that we will not have forces take us over that are beyond our capacity to endure. The concept of free will, the concept of the ability to choose between good and evil, is fundamental to biblical perspective. But the paranormal violates that concept. It puts the discussion in the realm where forces and powers exist that can take away our choice. In Romans 8 and verse 28, we're told that all things work to the good of those who love God. So no matter what the circumstance is in life, whatever happens to us can be turned to good. And we tried again to give you an example of that in our discussion about why God created man. Several times in the Bible, Colossians 2 and verse 15 being the classic example, we're told that Jesus came to destroy Satan's work. 1 John 3, 8 also says that. And then one of the most important passages connected with this concept, biblically, of why the paranormal is not applicable to us, is Hebrews 4 and verse 15. Jesus was tempted in every way, as we are. So if things like demon possession, if things like ghostly control, for things like out-of-the-body experiences, all of these things that are in the paranormal occur, and if Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, then Jesus must have experienced these characteristics. On a theological level, the concept of the paranormal is strongly spoken against in the Bible. Not only did God condemn these practices in the past, but he also has given us teachings about how to live in Christians which denies their reality. Now, the Bible also indicates to us that there have been scams in the past, fakes. Some of you may be familiar with the story in 1 Samuel 28, where King Saul goes to the witch of Endor. Now, those of you that are not familiar with this passage may want to read verses 8 through 12 especially. What happens here is that Saul has found himself in a difficult situation. He is losing a battle. He realizes that he is in serious trouble. He wants to know what to do. His chief mentor, Samuel, has died. So even though there has been all this condemnation of witches, Saul tries to find a witch. And as a matter of fact, when he finally finds one, the woman immediately, who has been apparently doing seances, immediately tells Saul that this has been forbidden by King Saul, you're going to get me killed, I don't want any part of this. But Saul prevails upon her. 
And what happens is that she then conducts this seance. It's interesting to read the story because what is obvious, to me at least in this situation, is that she does not expect what happens. Seances are circumstances where supposedly somebody is brought back from the dead and you can communicate and talk with them. My experience with seances, and I've been in a number of them, is that they are always a scam. There's always been research done that enables people to say things to make the thing look credible, and they're manipulated. She has arranged to take place, and Samuel actually shows up, and the woman screams. And if you look at the, the word that is used there, the indication is she is in hysterical screaming mode. She is beyond herself. She is outside herself. Why would that be? Because something has happened she did not expect to happen. Samuel actually showed up. God acted here to force a particular issue to take place with Saul, and she has been a vehicle in this regard, but she has had no power of her own. I know people have used this passage in the past to suggest the seances are real, but I suggest if you study it, the indication is it was a scam. In the New Testament, you have a wonderful story in Acts 19 about a group of people who had arranged exorcisms. The Bible refers them to them as exorcising Jews. And what happens is that they have apparently put up signs all over town that they're going to produce this exorcism. They have this man that is demon-possessed, and they're going to conduct this wonderful experiment and this wonderful show to put on this deal to get people to come and to see the power that they have. And what happens is that they use a word or a, a statement in the process of it that is revealed to us in the scriptures. They say, we adjure you in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches to come out of him. That's in their liturgy. <laughs> and the, the man who has the demon in him is speaks in response to that, and he says, Paul I know, and Jesus I know, but who are you? <laughs> the Bible tells us that the, the man then jumped on these guys and ripped their clothes off and sent them running out of the place, screaming away from the show they had planned to put on. It was an exposition. The exercising Jews were a scam. We have had, throughout history, all kinds of people who have made religious predictions. Scams and fakes have always been a part of man's history upon the earth. The Bible records it. We've seen it in our own time. And I suggest to you that that is very much a part of what is going on biblically as far as the paranormal is concerned. So what we've tried to do here is to simply indicate a few generalizations about the biblical approach to the question of the paranormal. Let me say to you again that we're discussing things here that are offered as an alternative to faith in God, as an alternative to Christianity. We're talking about things which suggest that some kind of acts on the part of man will appease spirit forces outside of God and will do so in perhaps a violent way. We're talking about things that are offered as something that mankind can engage in that will accomplish things spiritually that man cannot accomplish on his own. We're dealing with that aspect of the paranormal. All we've talked about is the biblical perspective. If you're an atheist, this has meant nothing. If you're a Christian, I hope I've 
in some way made you at least question whether or not these things should be practiced, involved in, or considered by Christians. But I think it's important to realize that there's another approach. There's a second method that can be involved by all of us here, and I think should be involved. And in our next presentation, this is what we want to talk about, and that's using scientific tools to investigate this phenomenon. And let me point out to you, again, if you're a Christian, the Bible tells us to do this. Notice 1 John 4 and verse 1. Do not trust every spirit, my friend, but test the spirits to see if they come from God. And then it gives us a way of identifying the positive spirits. Every spirit which confesses Christ, who has come in the human form, comes from God. We're not denying the spiritual. But we're saying that there's a need to test every spirit. And the Bible predicts that people would misuse this. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1 says God's spirit specifically tells us that in latter times people will desert the faith because they continuously give their attention to deceiving spirits and demonic teachings. The prediction is that this would be an issue. And it is an issue. So our next discussion, let's look at the scientific evidence and what our knowledge can give us in response to these claims. Well, that's all very interesting stuff, is it not? If you are like I am, um, you like Chinese food. I like Chinese food. I didn't eat Chinese food for a long time. I didn't eat anything other than meat and potatoes. Uh, growing up in the Midwest and my parents allowed me to avoid experimentation with other types of food. Um, moved to New Orleans and uh, wished I had experimented uh, a lot earlier in life. There is a lot, there are a lot of good types of food <clears throat> out there. One of the interesting things about uh, Chinese food, um, if you uh, go to a restaurant, is that little surprise at the end of the meal. And I think almost all Chinese places have it. And it's a fortune cookie. And the, the taste of the fortune cookie, I guess, varies from, from establishment to establishment. And it's marginal, probably at best. Um, <laughs> well, I like them and I eat them. But but I wouldn't order one off a menu, would you? <laughs> I don't know. Probably not. Uh, but what's inside each of those little cookies? And it, it's a novel little thing. How do they get this inside a, a cookie? You know, and the older we get, the more we realize that you can do things like that. But it it it, it also it appeals to that that sense of wonder or magic uh, about how this little piece of paper. With this information on it, how do they know that about me? How did they know I was going to get this particular cookie? Um, and I look at uh, astrology. What are those? Um, those um, the uh, forecasts? Yeah, the, the uh, forecasts. I can't remember. I can't remember what the phrase is that they use. That uh, your uh, fortune. I don't know. Anyway, it's whatever they have, uh, you know, for Leos. Okay? Uh, today's Monday. 
uh, if today is Monday. And here is what is going to occur for all Leos. And there's a nice general statement that could apply to Pisces and Sagittarians and so forth. Yet, there are people who sincerely believe and maybe even structure their lives around things of this nature. Signs from another world. Um, things that occur in their life that they assign meaning to without any you know, apparent um, evidence of such. So while fortune cookies and and astrology, astrology, horoscopes, astrology charts, and horoscopes specifically, um, you know, are interesting, uh, maybe even fascinating. And every now and then, you might have one that goes, "Whoa, what a coincidence!" You know, something like that did happen to me, or, or, or something of that sort. Um, they are intentionally designed to apply broadly, for people to find supposed truth in them. And I'm reminded of um, the Nostradamus um, phenomenon that occurred probably, what, 15 years ago, 20 years ago now, something like that. Someone found um, some writings, and they, apparently they'd been around for a long time, of a 15th century um, scientist who had written a bunch of uh, assertions, predictions of things that were going to happen. And all of a sudden, because of what was going on in the world at that time, people started looking at Nostradamus and saying, well, look, he predicted he predicted the assassination of President Kennedy. He predicted the, you know, the rise of, of some power in the Middle East. Uh, and, and so Nostradamus made statements that any historian who knows a bunch of facts about history could go back and plug it in and say, yep, that was that one, that one was that one, that one was that one, that one was that one. And you think, well, Nostradamus either must have been from God because he was prophesying, or he had some superior intelligence or demon or you know something like that that allowed him to um, prognosticate, to predict um, all of these things that were going to occur hundreds of, of years later. We find these things fascinating, but there is nothing to them, as John Clayton says. There, and while I was going to make this point a while ago about the uh, Chinese uh, food, the Asian food, um, it's the only type of food that I know of where you get, you know, something special at the end. And then I thought, well, no Happy Meals do that, but my six-year-olds don't wait until the end of the meal to get there. Uh, almost six-year-olds to get their prize. So, but yet that's that's similar. <coughs> so, let me get into our part of the discussion here. We have about twenty-five minutes, and I told Chris that I was going to just brainstorm with him here uh, for a second. Um, in our study of types, we talked about the importance of perspective. Old Testament characters lived in real time. They had little to no understanding about the subsequent impact and importance that would be tied to 
They're real-time activities. And the classic example is Abraham offering Isaac. Okay? we I don't need to go through that story. You know what the situation was. Um, it, it had to be traumatic for Abraham or else Abraham's faith was of such magnificence that he just went, when God talked to him, he just went right along with it and apparently was used to having God talk to him and it wasn't out of the ordinary. And he said, okay, if, if I have to kill Isaac, God will raise him from the dead. And so he, go, he sets about to kill his son um, and offer him as a sacrifice. Not questioning, at least according to the scriptures, why God would do this. The importance of that is, we find out later, is that we have in God's sacrificing of his son an experience, a situation that reflects back to a father sacrificing his son. And there are so many interesting parallels between that situation and this situation. And we'd have to go into the long study to illustrate that. Uh, I might mention, by the way, that Truth Publications has decided to publish uh, those lessons on types that, that we went through and that you all uh, laboriously uh, worked with me in that process. So now others will will be able to participate in, in that study as well. And so I was very happy to, to hear that. Then we had the first century. And the first century, a lot of those things that occurred in the Old Testament that had meaning for people in the first century when certain things happened that the earlier events, the earlier institutions, uh, the earlier uh, people were viewed as types of what took place here. We can talk about the priesthoods of Aaron and Christ and the comparison that's made between those priesthoods uh, in the book of Hebrews especially and then you throw in Melchizedek on top of that and then you have a comparison across uh, three different types of priesthoods with Jesus and Melchizedek falling into this special category over here. But the perspective in the first century was better than what was in the Old Testament. It was improved. It was still real time. But a lot of these many prophecies that took place in the Old Testament were coming true during that time. And then now... Today, 2000, some 2,000 years later, our perspective is different. We look back, we see what took place in the Old Testament. We look back, we see what took place in the New Testament. And our, our, we talk about our perspective being 360 degrees. We, all truth has been revealed to us. We don't need any other revelation to help us know who God is and know what his plan for us is. So this little brainstorming thing that I was going to do with Chris is <clears throat> what are some of the differences uh, or uniqueness um, of the first century compared to today? What was going on in the first century or went on in the first century that is different than today? So what's the first thing that comes to your mind? So like as far as like the paranormal stuff goes? Um uh, anything that we find in the Bible. Give me an example. I guess Jesus. Okay. In person. Okay. So just something that's completely different yes. that existed in the first century yeah. that doesn't... And, 
and I and I just yeah I just wrote down a few things myself. The first thing that came to mind is Jesus in the flesh. Okay. Okay. Talking he, donkeys. Yeah. He. <laughs> okay. That well, wasn't first century. I was back ah. before. I was back okay. before that. Okay. Uh, but but that type of thing. Okay. Oh gotcha. God. All right. What else? Um, uh, walking on people walking on water. Okay. The miracles. Not only Jesus in the flesh, God becoming man, but we had the miracles that came with him to to testify of him as he says um, these things were given me John 20 and 30 so that you could believe that I am he okay um, or the, actually it was John narrating there these were written so that you might believe um, but Jesus says you know if if John's testimony wasn't good enough if the prophet's testimony wasn't good enough if my testimony's not good enough believe me on the count of my miracles so we had a time a situation there where not only did you have the uh, the son of god in the flesh walking talking teaching performing miracles um on the earth as far as i know he's not doing that today okay we know that he died was buried, was raised from the dead, and then his place now is at the right hand uh, of God. And so uh, that was a different situation. Anything else come to mind? Uh, God speaking from heaven. Okay. God, right. God speaking uh, to individuals from heaven. The one that comes to my mind is John the Baptist. Yeah. Just right off the bat, you've got uh, Zechariah, um, Zacharias, the uh, father of John the Baptist. Um you, I mean, and and God speaking to individuals uh, just just right out of heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, in the Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, hear ye him. Um, so we have that occurring. To our knowledge, we don't we don't have a whole lot in between the Testaments about hmm, anything going on in the lives of Israel um, or uh, God interacting uh, with Israel. Um, and as we come toward the end of the Old Testament, we have less and less of God speaking as he did uh, to John um, and, and, and to Jesus and so forth. So uh, that, that was a different situation as well. Uh, supernatural gifts, mm -hmm. uh, the, the spiritual gifts um, were something that were, was given to individuals not only the apostles so that they could do the same types of things that Jesus could in the healings and so forth um, in order to give credence to the words that they were speaking. The miracles were simply signs and wonders and miracles. They were, uh, uh, they were a wonder. It got the people's attention. Nobody else was doing these. The seven sons of Siva that... Uh, that tried to cast out the demon. And, and the demon said, mm, Paul, I know. Jesus, I know. Uh, you, I don't know who you are. What it would have been like to be in a fly on the wall in that room. Oh, yeah. It would amazing. <laughs> so they just, he just destroys them and the room, and they run out naked because... Uh, and, and I think naked there means more than just physically. Yeah. They had been exposed. Yeah. They, they were frauds yeah. um, there. So um, the apostles... Um, as as well uh, as Paul were able to do miracles, and they were able, as we find out in in, in several situations, Acts eight, Simon, 
the sorcerer. They were able to pass those abilities on to others so that they could do unnatural things, supernatural things. Um, but then those individuals could not pass it on. Simon said, please give me that. You know, I'd love to be able to sell that uh, tried to buy on, it, yeah. on the marketplace. He even tried to buy it from them. And uh, they told him he was in the uh, he was in a bad state. Turns out that's not a good idea. <laughs> it's not a good idea, not a good idea at all. Um, so there were spiritual gifts, and we find out what all of these were in First uh, Corinthians twelve um, and fourteen, um, and and other passages that talk about um, these abilities of these individuals who could. Uh, prophesy, who uh, had supernatural knowledge, who could speak in tongues, who could do heal, heal yeah, yeah, faith was one, yeah, uh, that that were a part of first century Christianity that a apparently don't exist anymore, and and b there's no need for, and those two are are closely tied together, if. The Bible is correct. Miracles, the supernatural, were for a purpose. It was to testify that the words that the individuals had to offer on behalf of God were from God, just the same as the miracles were. And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, we know in part, we prophesy in part, meaning Paul himself prophesied in part and knew in part. It could be that Paul didn't have all knowledge had not been revealed at that point. Okay? The New Testament was not complete and assembled, but it is the perfect law of liberty, according to James. It is complete, and we do not need further revelation. If we need any more revelation other than our Bibles, then that, that opens up a whole can of worms, a whole realm of, I, I sit here and I look and, and uh, Chris must have, you know, a couple of hundred books here in his office, a, a good hundred. And uh, if every one of those books offered a different explanation for who God is and what he wants from us, every one of them would be legitimate. Because once you stray from God's word, then you have no standard for judging what is from God. Okay? We have a lawnmower in the background. I hope that doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, disturb the rest of our, our next 15 minutes. So, first century was different than today. And so, there are people today, however, and that's one of the things that, that Clayton will uh, talk about um, next week, and he talked a little bit about today, is that people want to pull first century uh, circumstances, first century experiences into the 20th, 21st century and say, it's just like it was then. Um, demons are still about. Um, healings can take place um, and so forth. I would suggest that the two centuries are different. The two circumstances are different. There was a purpose for Jesus coming to this earth to seek and save those who would be lost. There was a purpose in establishing the church and having that church uh, have 
similar authority over this worldly realm so that people would know that what was taught in the in the early church there by the apostles continuing in the apostles doctrine as we see in acts 2 was truth was just as much truth coming from their mouths as it was from jesus jesus commissioned his apostles matthew 16 15 uh, 16 through 20 and he says in those verses there these sh signs shall follow those and then in the last verse there it says and they did that so it confirmed the word words that they spoke it's very clear to me why miracles existed in the first century what their purpose was and why that purpose has been fulfilled in the complete revealed thorough perfect thoroughly furnishing us to all good works for reproof, correction, doctrine, instruction. Those passages should sound familiar to you. It's complete. We don't need anything else. We don't need miracles. We don't need demons. We don't need anything else for anybody else to demonstrate power over the natural world so that we can listen to them reveal more truth to us. And that was the purpose of those circumstances and those situations in the Old Testament. Well said. That's spot on. The only thing that, that he did mention, and maybe he will get into this, and if he doesn't, I think I will write him. I uh, wrote him about, about something else, and he responded extremely quickly, was this idea about temptation. And he uh, cites the passages that we're all familiar with. No temptation uh, will be uh, experienced by man other than which is common to man. All um, Christ has been tempted like in all ways as we are. And then he rolls into that the paranormal. And I would say that works as long as the paranormal is trying to get you to do something to sin against God. Temptation leads to sin. Um, and sin is transgression of the law, violating law, going against God's will um, that he has clearly communicated to us. And so if, he, if he's going to make that connection of, of temptation and Jesus and, and the paranormal, um, then, then he, he needs to tie those, tie those two concepts to, together a little bit more closely. Is that valid? Yeah, I think so. I, I was kind of confused by that too. I thought he was saying, you know, since Jesus didn't have a demon then we don't have demons either. That common thing. Yeah, yeah. and I yeah. was, I was kind of confused by that. So it's a good clarification point there. So a couple of things that I've mentioned, uh, people have brought into, the, and it's not just our century, people have been doing these in, in, in probably since the first century. I'm not sure, but it seems to me that with the advent of the TV and the radio, um, they have, at least one of them has, has kind of exploded. Uh, you don't hear so much about them anymore because maybe they were, just became commonplace or everybody thought they were frauds, you know, for one reason or another. The other one, the, the exorcisms of demons, um, is another one that I think probably, uh, oh, I want to say, did I read something that uh, in the 15th, 15th century? Uh, the Catholic Church took a stand on, on, on demonology and exorcisms and they came out with a manual for that. Um, that might have even been, been later, a more recent uh, time period. And they reasserted 
there was question as to whether or not demons actually exist. And they, the Catholic Church reasserted the fact that, yes, they do, and that exorcisms are indeed how to get rid of them. Written by Sceva. Written by sons of Sceva. <laughs> Sceva, yeah. Uh, there was a, uh, a magician. I want to say musician. There was a magician. His name was the Amazing Randy. R-A-N-D-I. Um, when I was growing up or when I was in, in my teens, 20s, uh, 30s, whenever, who uh, was a magician, just like any. He'd go on TV and talk, talk shows and perform magic um, and uh, wow the crowds. He knew how to trick people. He knew the art of getting people to believe their eyes rather than what was really happening. Uh, and knew how to deceive people. And I, I looked him up because um, he went on a crusade. He was going to expose these people who um, were tele-evangelists who were healing people in their crusades. And if, if you've watched any of these, you, you have seen them and you have probably sat there either in awe or horror, yeah. one of the two, about what they do to people and with people. Um, Randy, James Randy was his, his name, um, full name, but he went on a, on a crusade to expose him. And I, I just printed this off. It's very small print. See if I can read this uh, to you before we close. We've got about six minutes. James, the amazing Randy, is a world-renowned magician. This was written in 2009, and there's a 28-minute um, video. You can go on YouTube and, and hear him talk about his... Uh, exposure. He wrote a book, uh, several books, on on this as well. Skeptic, an investigator of paranormal normal claims, as it is a central figure in the founding of the worldwide skeptical movement. Perhaps best known for the one million dollar challenge, in which his educational foundation awards one million dollars, and I'm thinking it's still alive, to anyone who is able to show evidence of any paranormal, supernatural. A supernatural or occult power or event under test conditions agreed to by both parties. So if you believe in the paranormal and you can call upon the paranormal, I'd go get my million dollars. <laughs> right. If I were you. Randy has appeared widely in the media, talks about Johnny Carson Tonight Show 22 times. He's been on a Penn and Teller Showtime series. Um, done a number of things, authored many books, in tr including The Truth About Yuri Geller, Flim Flam, and The Faith Healers. In this interview with DJ Growth, James Randi talks about the future of this amazing meeting that he is going to have, his annual popular critical thinking convention in Las Vegas. He also discusses various faith healers he has investigated and his real motivations in doing so. And let me just stop and say, if you don't know what a faith healer is, a... a Faith healer, I don't know if there's an actual definition, my definition is, is an individual who says, you have a malady, you have a condition, it could be internal, it could be external, you might not be able to walk, you might have this, you might, you, you come to me, and with the power of God, I will pray over you, I may speak in tongues, and I may even hit you in the forehead, and you fall backwards, or fall out, or whatever, but you are going to be healed. After three easy payments at $59.99. After three easy payments. And if you're not, 
then you don't have enough faith. That's a nice stipulation, isn't it? Jesus never had that. Jesus never said, come back in a week and let's see if you're improved. Jesus' miracles were immediate and total and complete and were wonders that made people think, what order of man is this? What kind of man is this? Randy talks about his first first faith healer exposed in Toronto as a teenager. He explores reasons why faith healers he has debunked still persist in their TV empires. He shares his views of Ernest Angley. He recounts his expose of Peter Popoff, including Popoff's use of an earpiece to receive information about his congregants, people from the uh, in the audience, that they believed was revealed by the Holy Spirit. He was getting information from people in the audience about the people on stage, and that person was relaying it to him, his ear, electronically. He explains why people believe in faith healers despite evidence to the contrary. Other faith healers he criticizes includes Pat Robertson and his words of knowledge, uh, V.A. Grant, Oral Roberts, Filipino psychic surgeons, recounting some of their deceptive methods they use to beguile believers. He talks about the special place psychic surgery has in the Pentecostal church. He compares faith healers' methods to the methods of psychics and cold readers such as John Edward and explores whether faith healers are deliberately deceptive or are merely self-deceptive. He also debates whether faith healing might actually work on occasion due to psychological phenomena such as the placebo effect. In research, in order to make sure that the test that you are uh, conducting is not just luck or happenstance or, or that somebody is able to um, um, have the outcome that you want simply because they want it, what they'll do is they'll set up uh, a room of 20 people, 100 people, how many ever uh, is in your sample. And to a certain group of those people, they will receive not the treatment. It's a pill that looks like the treatment or whatever the treatment is, and they think it is. And so they are able to test whether or not that pill actually had an effect on those people or if the effect was due to the placebo effect. The people thought they were getting it, so the outcomes were similar to those who actually got it. Now, what he's saying is, with regard to this, is that if these people really think they have a demon and they call upon a Catholic priest to come and cast out that demon and they do enough whatever at that particular time to make the person think that the demon has come out of them, their behavior will change. And it could be these people are messed up um, in the head. It could be they have um, you know, psychoses and neuroses and things like that that need to be treated other than this way. And they're saying also here that faith healers operate the same way. If I think I've got something wrong with me and I go to somebody that I think can cure me through faith healing and they act, they do something fantastic and, and all of a sudden I feel better, our minds are capable of doing that to us. And I don't have time to go into explanations about all that. I don't have all the answers, but the answers are out there. 
He talks about the role that magicians should play in exposing frauds in the public instrument, uh, public interest. So, we're out of time. That's just my thoughts on some of the things about the paranormal that he had, that he talked about and introduced, and we'll go next time for uh, paranormal and scientific evidences. Yes. So, see you next week. See you guys.